It is good to see the children having fun. Our scripture reading today continues on in the Gospel of Mark, beginning with chapter 3, verse 7 today. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake, and a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard about all he was doing, many people came to came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and the regions across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. Because the crowd of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him. For he had healed many so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Whenever the impure spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. But he gave them strict orders not to tell others about him. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed twelve that they might be with him, and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the twelve he appointed, Simon, James, Zebedee, John, Andrew, oh, I'm just going to sing it. Simon called Peter, his brother Andrew, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, Philip and Bartholomew, and Thomas and Matthew, James and Lebius, whose surname was Thaddeus, Simon the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, these twelve were called. Let's pray. Gracious God, we ask your blessing upon the reading of your word. We are blessed to be able to hear it this morning. Thanks for the record of the life of Jesus Christ. And as we contemplate the meaning of the call of the Twelve today, help us understand what that means for us, now and forever. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Hostility towards Jesus has been mounting as we've been going through this gospel. We've been seeing that, and it continues to mount as we move through Jesus' use of that phrase, Son of Man, that title for himself, Jesus' expression of his authority to forgive sins, his lordship over everything, even creation, even the Sabbath, as we talked about last week, even creation. They were blasphemous claims in the eyes of the authorities. And so as we ended our reading last Sunday, you may recall that the authorities are trying to kill Jesus. They're even teaming up with their fierce enemies, the Herodians. They hated the Herodians. But it's like, well, it's like during times of war, if you're not my enemy, you're my friend. And so they teamed up with their enemies to try to kill Jesus. And now, just after that, as we start today's reading, Jesus is frustrated again with the crowds that are pressing in on him. So he withdraws to the lake, it says, which is the Sea of Galilee. He's frustrated by those large crowds to hear him or to see him do things that is not his primary purpose. We talked about that. Rather than wanting to hear him teach and preach about the kingdom of God, rather they want something. They want healing for their bodies. 
rather than food for their souls. You know, when thinking about this passage this week, I, I was thinking about the things that are typically, well, on our prayer list. Think about the things on our prayer list. Most of our prayer requests are for healing, aren't they? <laughs> They're not praying for, well, spiritual things. They're bodily things. They're earthly things. They're not praying for someone else's spiritual needs or for the ministry of the gospel. And seldom do we acknowledge the beauty of someone who has gone on before into eternity. But today we will pray for those things. We will honor those saints later in this service. Don't get me wrong, God is concerned absolutely with our bodies. It's hard to be holy if you're consumed with pain or other things, sickness. And we are not heretics like the Gnostics or some of the early heretical groups in Christianity that teach that the body is all bad. I mean, even Jesus came in the body, right? We're not heretics. But we are not just bodies. We are not just bodies. We are body and soul. And the care about the soul was clearly the top priority for Jesus. That's why he withdrew when people pressed in on him and he couldn't preach and teach about it. Jesus' top priority was the soul. After all, Jesus said, well, what would it profit a man if he gained the whole world but lost his soul, right? We often say, put your money where your mouth is. Jesus said, well, you can... Well, he said it even better than that. He said, put your money where your heart is, so to speak. Where your treasure is, your heart will be also. <laughs> you know, it's interesting that the lowest paid professional group in America... is the ordained clergy. Did you know that? And when you compare that, which takes at least 10 years, at least 10 years, four years of college, three years of seminaries, three years of other preparatory stuff and writing and papers and ordination, at least 10 years, usually longer than that. When you compare that to other similar professions that take about the same amount of time, well, you could compare it to the, to the medical profession, college, medical school, residency, so on the other end of that pay scale is, well, of course, the medical profession. <laughs> it tells you what we value, doesn't it? We value our bodies, which is good, but we don't value our souls, which is bad. <laughs> you know, when God established the whole tithing system in the Hebrew Scriptures, he did that to support the ministry of the soul. As we talked about last week, the priests ate that consecrated bread that was on the altar. They ate it. The priests and their families ate the food, the meat that was sacrificed. They ate it. I mean, one out of 12 tribes was a priestly tribe, a priestly families. And so that one-tenth that was sacrificed and given was to feed them. You could say that priestly work was the only thing paid for by divine taxation. <laughs> God didn't leave that one to the free market. He didn't, as we do today. God realized that being the fallen creatures that we are, 
If left to the free market system, we would never choose to adequately support ministry to the soul. We would never make that choice. And Jesus is confronting that problem in our scripture reading today, isn't he? He withdrew once again. He had already done that already. We remember that a few weeks ago. But he withdrew once again because the people were more interested in their bodies than their souls. They were not interested in hearing teaching and preaching about eternal things, about the kingdom of God. Which in the end is far more valuable than any benefit we could receive by the touch of Jesus as the people wanted then. Because what matters to the soul matters forever. What happens to our bodies is just a short time. We're just passing through this world for a short period of time in eternity, aren't we? Just a short time. Someone, I, th I think it might have been Sigmund Freud, some, somebody in that psychological world, as I recall, said... Life is terminal, and the prognosis is grim. <laughs> that's, what, that's what he said. And you know, if all you're thinking about is the body, it's absolutely right. It's absolutely right. If all you're concerned about is the body, it's a pretty negative, pessimistic view of this world and this life, isn't it? Life is terminal, and the prognosis is grim. So Jesus withdrew his disciples to the edge of that sea, and notice he said, have a small boat ready for me. <laughs> Did you notice that? Have a small boat ready for me on the shore, just in case I got to get away, just in case the people are pressing in on me, just in case I have to take a little distance between all these people that want me to touch them. My, my grandfather, up at our place in the UP, used to keep a little rowboat on the shore of the bay on the backside in the weeds where you can hardly get back in there with a boat of any size with the motor. And when things, I suppose, got pressing in on him, he would often walk back through the woods. It was a quarter mile through the woods to the edge of the bay. And when I was a little kid, he used to take me with him. He'd shove out on that beautiful bay that nobody could get into with a powerboat and just sit out there and enjoy the silence and the beauty of nature, and he would teach me. <laughs> he passed away when I was six years old, so I don't remember very much about my grandfather, but I do remember that. And I will remember him today by lighting a candle in his honor. Back to our scripture story. Then Jesus withdrew from the crowds and he went up on the mountainside. Jesus went up to the mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. And we get the broader list of disciples here, all 12 of them. We read earlier about the call of the first four, remember? And then a couple weeks later, we read about the call of Levi or Matthew, the fifth one. But now we get all 12 listed. 
And a great departure of the custom at the time of folks who were wanting to learn and study under a rabbi was the way Jesus called his disciples. In those days, you had to express interest. You had to apply, if you will. I suppose not unlike applying to a college or something today. But Jesus didn't do any of that, did he? He didn't say, anyone who wants to learn from me, sign up. He didn't do that. He recruited the ones that he wanted to, to teach and to disciple. And they came to him. <laughs> we need to do more of that. I need to do more of that. Recruiting the ones we need as leaders of this movement. I'm starting to do more of that. Some of you know that. <laughs> you go after the people you want and you need. You go after them. Disciples, not volunteers. You remember that one? <laughs> Jesus did that. He recruited the ones he wanted to teach and disciple, and they came to him, the scripture says. And he called them not to study the law of Moses and other things like most rabbis were teaching at the time or anything else per se. He called them to himself. He called them to himself. Please understand this. You see, anytime Jesus calls us, anytime he calls someone to discipleship, he's calling them first and foremost to himself. To not only learn from him, but to learn of him. He called those he wanted to himself. And that was a sovereign call, if you will, if you want to think Calvinistically. It's a sovereign call, as all true calls are, because, well, everybody came. And they came to join this group of folks, didn't they? They came to be part of something, well, of who Jesus was and who Jesus is. We could say he called them to be the first church. Remember the definition of the church? There's only one word in the Bible that's translated church. Same word, root word we get ecclesiastical from, things of the church. And that root of that in Greek, E-C, -E or actually E-X sound, X, is the same well as that exit sign back there, which means go out, right? <laughs> he called out and then the middle part of that means uh, kaleo, kind of, it's almost like English, called. Sounds almost like English. Called out from the world to be in Jesus. Called out from the world to be in Christ's holy body. And that's who he established in his church. He called out, which also means holy, set apart. That's the word for sanctuary. Those things all apply to the church. That, those things all apply to you. Yeah, you. <laughs> Those things all apply to you. And you know the word holy in French? Anybody speak French? You know what the word holy is in French? Saint. <laughs> Saint. When the saints go marching in, New Orleans, a French area, that's where that song came from. And together, we the church are indeed saints. We're called out to live holy lives. Those holy lives made holy because Christ made us holy because Christ called us. And it begins now and it goes on forever. Life, contrary to what Freud or whoever that person was who said that said, life is not 
terminal and the prognosis is not grim, life together in Jesus Christ is forever. Amen? And that means that you and I are part of something much bigger than we can ever see in this world. Much bigger and better, praise God. We are part of something holy. We are holy. More holy than I am, more holy than you are, but we are holy because Christ, made, Christ called us and Christ made it that way. You know, in this time and in this place, we seem to be preoccupied with individual faith. It's probably my number one criticism of modern-day Protestantism, particularly fundamentalism. It's all about personal faith, personal salvation, except Jesus Christ is your personal Savior, all of which has some truth in it, don't get me wrong. But it's all about me, 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 me. It's what faith's all about, right? But you cannot be Christ's holy church, set apart, called as his people, by yourself. You cannot be that way. You cannot be Christ-called people by yourself. Notice that when Christ calls somebody, he calls an individual, but he places them in a group. Did you notice that? He places them in a group. You probably noticed there was no title for this message today, because I struggled with it all week long. <laughs> Talked about it at staff last week. You got a good title for this one? And uh, trying to follow our passage through Mark and still make it mean something for all saints. <laughs> But he calls someone and places them in a group. And Pastor Kim, who was at that meeting, said, oh, here's what you need to call it. Jesus has a small group, do you? <laughs> this probably would have been a good title, and that's a teaser. Go read your newsletter. Become in January, we're going to have an opportunity for everybody to be in a small group. So read your newsletter. You can't do this alone. There is this corporate dimension to being called. There's a corporate dimension to God's kingdom. We dare not lose sight of that. I've talked to so many people during this COVID thing who have lost all sense of corporate worship. It was happening slowly before COVID. I understand that. This has been a trend. But COVID exacerbated it beyond belief. They've lost all sense in corporate worship but church being called to Christ's holy church is always a corporate thing it's never an individual thing verse 14 as we read said he called those he wanted <laughs> then he appointed 12 he appointed them that they might be with him that they might be with him and that he might send them to preach. <laughs> you know, the, the primary meaning of that verb appoint, even though it, it can be at times properly translated appoint, as it is in the NIV as we read it, but the primary meaning of the root of that verb to appoint means to make something. To make something. And in fact, in the Greek Septuagint, the translation of the Hebrew Scriptures, that word, same root word in Greek, 
appears in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. He didn't appoint the earth. He didn't select the earth. He made it. He created it. And this is what Jesus is doing here. He doesn't just select individuals, but he makes them something. He makes them into an intimate group. He makes them a church. And what did he make them for? Well, the scripture tells us. It says he created them that they might be with him. Wow. You see, when we are called by Christ, we enter into Jesus, and this profound mystical union takes place. You're in Christ. Christ is in you. I'm in Christ. Christ is in me. And so together we have this bond, this spirit that lasts forever. Jesus makes a group that he can get into and that will last forever. And the purpose is so that we can be with him. John 14, in my Father's house are many rooms. I'm going there to play, prepare a place for you so that he can be with us. We can be with him. Is there any greater blessing this morning than to be in the presence of Jesus Christ forever? I praise God that he has called you and me to be with Jesus Christ and each other forever. Amen.
Thank you for worshiping with us today. Today we celebrate all these candles. And you know, we celebrate the fact that we're gonna fly away one day and one day we're gonna be a candle. And that's something to celebrate, not to despise. Amen? Amen. Go in Christ's eternal peace.